1: Welcome to the Real Vision Podcast Network. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Jack Farley. It is Wednesday, September 22nd. I'm joined by the great Darius Dale of 42 Macro. Darius, how you doing?
2: I'm good. I'm not that great, man, but I appreciate the uh, the kind introduction. How you doing, man?
1: I'm doing well. You are great, Darius. And I want to say, this is perhaps the most action-packed day uh, that I've ever hosted on The Daily Briefing. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll see. We got S&P 500 roaring higher up 1%. The Evergrande fears that it's going to be a contagion, those fears were allayed for reasons that maybe we'll get into. Uh, so you you also had some flattening of the yield curve, um, the 10 to spread yeah. Uh, we had uh, the Fed FOMC meeting uh, announced. They put out their statement at two. The market felt one way about it. Then we had Fed Chair Powell speak at two thirty. The market felt very different. Uh, Darius, we were just speaking before, and uh, you said there was a storm brewing. Tell us why you think there's a storm brewing.
2: Yeah, no, and 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 so to be clear, we've always thought there was a storm brewing uh, associated with the net liquidity dynamics that might inflect in an unfavorable way for risk assets later this year. Um, I think in terms of the information that we've received as investors this this week, if you're paying attention, I think it all could happen sooner, faster, and nastier. <laughs> um, you know it's not to say go around and short stuff. Um, um, you know today on that, I certainly think from a risk management standpoint, I think the most the, the most the, 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 the most operative thing you can do as an investor right now is take down your gross exposure, but keep a wide net exposure. And you know you want to be favorably disposed to upside and risk assets. But I I would argue you don't need to have the same amount of uh, gross exposure, or you need to raise cash. Because again, I think, again, if it happens sooner, faster, and nastier, uh, you're going to have a liquidity problem. You might not be able to get out of certain exposures.
1: Yeah. So Darius, I just learned this as we were speaking before. But since we last spoke last week, you have become not bearish, of course, but significantly less constructive on liquidity dynamics. And yes. significantly less constructive on risk assets. In other words, you're seeing not the alarm, the alarm bell, it's not flashing red, but it's it's turning a certain color in a maybe a little more subtle way. And you're looking at cash as something that's more attractive relative to risk assets like stocks, big tech, and particularly cyclical assets. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us, tell us why that's the case.
2: Yeah, so I think you're alluding to. So obviously, you get my notes and our research. Uh, you know, we went to uh, we came into the week at 20% cash. You know, we went to 40% cash uh, yesterday, and we think that's a prudent move and for for a variety of dynamics that I'm about to unpack. And so, if you go back to you know everything I've been saying on this program for the past couple of months, it's been hey, yeah, like you can stay long this market. The market's going to generally behave like Goldilocks well into the fall as a function of positive net liquidity dynamics. Um, those net liquidity dynamics are still very much um, on the table. Um, we're still very much in that in that process. But what we learned this week is that again, they might actually inflect negatively sooner. And so let's start with the fiscal policy because again, I think that's part of the reason we saw such a uh, you know poop show on Monday is the fact that <laughs> okay. Treasury Secretary Yellen, Treasury Secretary Yellen, came out and said, "Hey, I'm going to run out of money sometime in October." Now we have no idea if that sometime in October is October first. October 31st, or anywhere in between, but what we do know is that it's not, you know, early to mid-November like the CBO initially forecast back in July. So that's dynamic number one. Dynamic number two is what we got yesterday: uh, House Democrats attached the debt limit uh, suspension, one-year debt limit suspension. Uh, to the continuing resolution proposal, um, which is effectively dead on arrival in the Senate. Mitch McConnell has m- much confirmed that last night and, and again this morning. And so what that means is that the the, the Democrats in the Senate are going to have to use reconciliation to pipe through the debt limit uh, increase. They're going to have to increase it if they use reconciliation. Now, none of that in and of itself is bearish, but what this likely means is that because Treasury secretary Yellen is starting to feel the pressure on, on their extraordinary measures they're gonna to have to jam that reconciliation bill uh, uh, through the Senate much sooner than we initially anticipated which means going back to our remember our, our discussion about uh, the Fed the, the Treasury being the bully you know kind of shaking people upside down by their ankles that whole dynamic might actually happen sooner um, we initially thought it'd be you know let's say mid-november December kind of ordeal it, you know in line with the Fed potentially starting a tapering program. And that's number three, tapering program in December, that bully might actually be getting to the, the schoolyard sometime in mid to late October. So that's f- at least a full month sooner than we initially anticipated, which is why we think it's, it's prudent to start taking down your gross exposure into that. You want to remain long risk. We still have plenty of risk, risky assets in, the, in, the, in, our, in our 42 macro portfolio construction, but we actually want to start raising cash and not actually be too uh, exposed to the market. So take down gross, keep your net wide. Uh, But with respect to the Fed, and I'm sure you're going to have a lot of different questions on this. But the number one thing that, sort of, in context of the net liquidity dynamics we've been highlighting recently, the number one thing I learned today is that hey, no matter almost no matter what happens with that child support next month, if it's decent or reasonably good, which basically means give me a few more hundred thousand people, uh, these guys really want to get on with tapering. That means they're going to start tapering in November, and it's probably going to be at 15 billion a month pace. That's very different than starting tapering in December at 10 billion a month and kind of watching pain dry. That means these guys are in a hurry to get to neutral so that they can actually have some flexibility on the short end of the on the policy rate curve. So to me, that's a little bit more hawkish than, than certainly I was anticipating. Um, and I certainly believe that once you get on the other side of some of these options dynamics, you obviously had a tremendous amount of eyeball premium priced into the market uh, prior to this week. You still have a tremendous amount of eyeball premium priced in the market for next Thursday's mm-hmm. quarterly expiry, expiry. But Once you get past that, I certainly think the market uh, volatility could actually Start to uh, start to those dynamics could change.
1: Yeah, the kicker from the statement released at 2 p.m. Eastern time was quote, and this is from from the Fed statement. If progress quote, if progress continues broadly as expected, the committee judges that a moderation in the pace of asset purchases may soon be warranted. And from mm-hmm. anyone else on the planet, that sounds like the most mild statement. But from the Federal Reserve, which is perhaps the most understated organization in the world, that actually packs a big punch. And we got that later when Jay Powell spoke uh, 30 minutes later. And he said exactly as you say. It wouldn't take a knockout employment report to taper. It would just take a decent report. So it's not going to take an amazing, the best labor market uh, report ever for the Fed to taper start to taper in uh, its next meeting of November 2nd. Only mm-hmm. a... Good report, and he—I mean—he said it bluntly. He said, "Substantial further progress test for employment is yep. all but met," right, right there in the language, right?
2: Yeah, no, it's—it's a—it's a, its a in, in our opinion, with respect to their their economic projections, particularly for next year, um, and obviously with respect to the commentary around you know recent labor market developments, recent inflation developments, these guys are all freaking out on inflation, as evidenced by you know the record number of board members that are saying skewing the inflation um risk is skewed to the upside. No, they're definitely concerned about like not being close enough to hiking the policy rate. And that is obviously a discussion that is really starting to take shape at the Federal Reserve, which is why I believe we're seeing this um, sooner, more accelerated pace of tapering kind of put out there on the calendar.
1: And Darius, how does a tapering of uh, the Federal Reserve balance sheet expansion, how, tell us how that impacts asset markets? It's such yeah, an impossible so it's, question. It's, but yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, great,
2: great. It, it's a great question. So tapering in and of itself is not an issue, right? Like if they're going from 120 billion a month to 105 billion to you know 90 billion, like that's not the issue. The issue is that the US government has more or less they have not been issuing a, a ton of debt in the last few months. You know, you go back to the the, the fall of the spring and, and and fall of last year, they obviously front end loaded a lot of the uh, debt issuance that they were going to uh, uh they're going to turn into uh, expenditures in the economy, and they, you know, did some front-end loading of that this year as well. And so, you know, the Treasury has not been this real big onerous um, a sort of issuer on, on the on the U.S. Treas- on the U.S. Uh, credit markets and really the global credit markets. And so that's allowed the Fed's QE program to really filter down the risk out on the risk spectrum down the capital structure into other assets. Now, if the Treasury comes back sooner. And reconciliation, all that stuff happens sooner, where they're going to start to tap the asset markets at a, at a much more fervent pace. So you could go from a, 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 a TGA drawdown to Treasury's general account. You know, I think it's been drawn down over you know $1.3, $1.4 trillion a year to date. You know, And that line could actually start to go in the wrong way, which means the net liquidity line in this in this chart, I believe, is the first chart you have in your your, your deck there.
1: Yeah, let's uh, put that chart up. Yeah, see. thanks.
2: That means the blue line in that chart, which has been carrying the market higher, um, and the, you know, and then, and all throughout the year, can actually start to peter out and, and potentially inflect lower. That to me is a big deal in terms of you know removing one of the key drivers of, of risk asset price appreciation.
1: Okay, so the red line, that's easy. That's the S and P 500. The blue line is net liquidity, which you calculate as the Fed Real Reserve's balance sheet minus the TGA minus the Treasury General Account.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think that's a very crude, rough proxy. I'm I'm sure people who are much closer to the plumbing than I am um, have a different take on that, but I think it's a it's a reasonable proxy. And so what that effectively means is that you know because the TGA, I believe that's the next chart, because the TGA has been drawn down so much here to date, the Treasury hasn't really been sucking you know liquidity and sucking capital out of the economy and out of asset markets. Well, that could actually start to change. You know, if the Fed starts tapping uh, uh, the public debt market, um, you know much more fervently than they have in recent quarters. Um, you know, the one thing I will say on the other side of that, the red line in this chart here, we're showing uh, the overnight repo, and obviously we're up at you know was that one point two, a little bit over one point two trillion. So there is space in financial markets to absorb. A meaningful uh, increase in 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 treasury borrowing, um, in so much that you know money market fund assets, I believe they're around you know 3.5, sorry, they around 4.5 trillion dollars. That's up 900 billion dollars from where it was, um, you know, prior to prior to uh, the pandemic. There's additional scope and space for in financial markets for the treasury to return and actually be well received. However, I would argue. The reason we have 1.2 trillion dollars in overnight repo and an additional 900 billion dollars sending in money market funds is because people don't want to capitalize the US treasury at inflation rates this high right so we either need to see bond yields back up um, in terms of nominal real interest rates in a meaningful way to get this money off the sideline or we need to see a bout of cross asset volatility that forces you know this, this cash pile, these sort of reserves to go into find its, its home in the treasury market so um, I'm not saying all that has to happen on October 1st I'm not saying it all has to happen by October 31st, but these are the dynamics we expect it to occur, you know, in in mid to late Q4. And I certainly think that it could actually be an early Q4 event, um, you know, in terms of what we've learned this week.
1: We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
3: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.
1: Welcome back to the daily briefing. Let's get back to top analysis of today's markets. Okay, So on this chart we have here, the blue line is the Treasury general account. That's the bank account for the US Treasury. Mm -hmm. In 2020, the Treasury issued an enormous amount of paper. And that's the explosion in the blue line you see. Since then, the Treasury has held off. Meanwhile, the Federal Reserve has been buying all of those Treasuries. And the Treasury has been using all that cash, I I should say. Um, Mm -hmm. But there's been a lack of collateral, a lack of treasuries in the system. That's why the Federal Reserve had to do the red line. That mm-hmm. is reverse repo. If you're watching this and you're confused, don't worry. I'm very confused, too. Uh, let's go on to the third chart. Uh, describe. Can you see this? Uh, this is the money market uh, account. What, what is this, Darius? Yeah.
2: So just uh, showing ICI, money market fund assets, so like large asset managers in there, and how much money they have in, in money market funds, and, and so or how much of their Customers' money they have in money market funds. And so, you know, the key takeaway is that, you know, this line is very elevated relative to the red line, which is the the Chicago Fed's National uh, Financial Conditions Index. When that red line goes up, it means financial conditions are tightening. Uh, When the red line is low, it means you're very loose, easy monetary policy, you know, filtering through financial markets. It's very anomalous and very unusual to have such an elevated cash balance with such a low level or with such an easy level financial conditions. You know, why are people so, why are are they holding such excess cash? And I would argue all that excess cash isn't because there's not enough, you know, short-end supply of treasuries. It's because people don't want to buy bonds. Everyone looks around. Inflation is is the number one sort of um, uh, 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 headwind, at least according to a lot of investors, you know, and you do these uh, institutional surveys out of BFA and stuff like that. And so I think people just sitting on their hands and saying, hey, I'm not receiving the 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 return that I need to justify you know making a bet on the on the uh, capitalize the U.S. government at these interest rates and to me that that means there could be a very awkward moment where Treasury Secretary Yellen returns to the market <laughs> at the same time where people are like I think I need you to, to see higher rates and if, if that means like we see a, a meaningful backup in in real interest rates you know to me that's 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 a problem in the context of a decelerating economy both in the U.S. and abroad.
1: So Darius, just to hammer home, let's put that first chart up again. It's that blue line that the net liquidity that you approximate. The uh, uh, the figure is the Fed balance sheet. Mm-hmm. That is, it's currently going up, but the rate of it going rate of its expansion is going to slow during taper and perhaps even reduce. Although that's going to be you know way down the line. And then what you subtract is the TGA. And you're yeah. saying that the TGA is very small now, so it has to get bigger. So on both sides of the equation, or or you know, the, in the in the figure that's positive and in the figure that's negative, the figure that's positive is going de- is going to go down, or or the rate of it is going to go down. The figure that's being subtracted is going to increase. So on both sides of the equation, it's not looking good for liquidity conditions, and and that's why you know, in a nutshell, you are are bearish about liquidity conditions, or or you're surprised at how. How much you're forecasting them to be negative relative to a month ago.
2: Yeah, exactly. It, it, to me, it's not that anything has changed in terms of those dynamics, although I would characterize them a little bit differently. Uh, it's that if, you, if the Fed's balance sheet is going to keep going up, it's just going to go up at a slower and slower pace, right? Until it stops going up sometime in the middle of next year. That we knew we just thought we initially would start in December. Um, we also knew that, there, you know, that uh, the Congress would find a way through all the hysteria and the political theater, and you know, potential about the you know, the episodic and non trading volatility associated with the debt ceiling. Who knows if Moody's or S&P comes out and says something? We knew that they would always, you know, raise or suspend the debt ceiling. We just thought, you know, according to the CBO's estimate, that it would be, you know, sometime in mid, mid to late Q4, right? Like we thought we had more time to stay in this very favorable net liquidity dynamic. And again, we have at least another month of it, so it's not like you need to go run out in short stocks. And oh, by the way, everyone's already ran out in short stocks. That's why the reaction, as I tweeted this morning, and I tweeted again this afternoon, that's why the reaction to the Fed meeting was so positive. Even though I would argue that they're tightening sooner and faster than we, I think, the market was anticipating, the reaction was going bound to be positive as long as he didn't say anything too draconian on the hawkish front, because you came into this setup with, you know basically you know, we track 37 core ETF exposures in our crowding analysis. we look at the the, the volatility risk premium and that's uh, the median of those 37 exposures was 50 percent heading in today 50 like I mean volatility risk premium of 50 percent is insane like that's really, really high. I mean it can obviously get up much higher than that, but you know for that to be the median that that's really high. so um, that was indicative of investors crowding on into the short side. And we're seeing the unwind of that positioning just because the event wasn't draconian. Now, I I think you can see a similar dynamic into uh, next Thursday's OpEx quarterly operations expiry because that's, again, on the other side of this FOMC catalyst. But I think once you get into October, I think investors are going to start to look ahead in an economy that is losing support from a net liquidity perspective. Not necessarily you know, on October 1st, or as soon as October 31st, but certainly that whole process that we're discussing right now is bare minimum being pulled for a full month.
1: We've got a lot of questions for you, Darius. And we. I also want to get your take on the new Evergrande uh, update. But before we do, let's actually go to our good friend, uh, Ash Bennington, a crypto reporter is at the Masari Mainnet Conference he is there, you know, brushing shoulders with uh, all the hedge funders who are getting into crypto, and he's got a, an important, um, uh, you know, news for us. So let's go to Ash.
0: Thanks, Jack. We're coming to you live guerrilla style from the Marriott Marquis Hotel where the Mainnet Conference, the Masari Mainnet Conference is underway. Uh, We're fortunate enough to be filming from the Waxman PR booth. They saved our bacon uh, by letting us film from their booth. We're literally right in the middle of the action here. I know you can hear some people walking by in the background, perhaps. Uh, It's a little bit loud because we are on the floor. Here's what's happening right now from the floor of the conference. I think the big story that everyone is talking about here at the conference, probably no surprise. Uh, it's what everyone is talking about outside the conference in the crypto space. The remarks of SEC Chair Gary Gensler before the Washington Post uh, conference yesterday. Uh, look, here's what's happening. Chair Gensler effectively said that uh, he does not see cryptocurrency being an asset class that has legs. That's oversimplifying a little bit. There's a little bit more nuance. Some of the headlines made it seem more bearish uh, than it was when you actually read the remarks themselves. But the reality is Chair Gensler did have some very serious concerns about the capacity of cryptocurrency, which, in his view, uh, many of the times, in terms of uh, the number of assets out there, many of which he believes are unregulated securities, unregulated. Banking products. So here's the core question for me, at least, is what is the reaction from the floor of the conference? These are some of the real crypto OGs, some of the largest investors in the space uh, here on the floor. What are they thinking? Well, I would say the reaction basically breaks down into two categories. The first category, uh, I would say, effectively are people who are saying cooler heads will prevail. Who are these people? These are essentially the institutional investors who are in the space who understand how regulation takes place. In their view, uh, if you talk to them, they will say that this is a key issue for global competitiveness. Uh, If the United States is not able to basically make progress in the crypto space and the digital asset space, uh, then the US competitiveness will be impaired. For that that reason, they believe we're going to get the kind of sensible regulation that we need eventually. There may be some rocky times. It may require new legislation from Congress. Uh, But in the view of the cooler heads will prevail crowd, The belief is that ultimately, we're going to get the regulation we need. What's the other position? Well, the other position is the couldn't kill it if they tried view. Uh, I would say that's the point of view that we hear coming uh, from the people who have been in the community for a very long time, people who are ideologically uh, attached to this movement, In their belief, uh, these assets are becoming progressively more decentralized and aren't going to be able to be censored by governments around the world, even if they wanted to. What do those two positions have in common? Well, what they have in common is they are both incredibly bullish. People here uh, on the floor, people in the space are looking at this from a longer view perspective, taking the broad view on what's going to happen to these assets. They're not looking at uh, the dip uh, here in the last day. They're thinking about 1, 5, 10, 20 years in the future. If you listen to people who are really evangelical about the technology, they will say that regulators come and go, but digital assets, uh, assets that can be decentralized are a real durable trend. It's here to stay, and it's going to change the world. One final point, Uh, I joked on Twitter yesterday, uh, I had like a pseudo quote on Twitter, and it was, Gary Gensler, the crypto party is over. Uh, Masari Mainnet and response, uh, crypto party, really, am I on the list? It doesn't seem to be impacting uh, folks here on the ground. Uh, It's an interesting story. Obviously, we're going to be watching the markets very closely at Real Vision, but the mood here uh, among the faithful has not been dampened. Jack, back to you.
1: Thank you, Ash. Uh, Darius, that was a great update on crypto from Ash. Let's go back into the world of macro and talk about Evergrande. It seems that on Monday, everyone was pulling their hair out, so worried about it. And yet today, the market eased a sigh of relief. And I'm a little bit confused why. Let me read a few of the the, the news uh, updates. Uh, number one is that the, China, the People's Bank of China injected 90 million, uh, excuse me, no, 90, excuse me, 90 billion uh, renminbi into the, into the financial markets, just as they did on Friday. And the second piece of news is that China Evergrande announced that it will pay or that it plans on paying its uh, interest due uh, tomorrow. That interest is, it's uh, not dollar denominated debt, it's renminbi denominated debt. But then I saw some analysts say that He's unclear if they will pay in cash. So, Darius, you know, if, if I get a credit card bill at the end of the month and I tell my bank that I'm I'm going to pay, I'm just not going to pay in cash. How do you think they would react?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, don't think they, I think they'd laugh you out of the room. Uh, I mean, look, I, I said this a few weeks ago. The, this Evergrande situation is a big deal, but it's not a you know, it's not this Lehman moment. It's not going to create catalyze broad financial sector contagion because China, one, isn't really plugged into the broad financial sector. But more importantly, they have the resources, and I believe the political will, to not let this get out of hand. However, I did also say that, look, the fact that they're going to maintain macroprudential tightening on the federal estate sector in the face of all this and more importantly, not panic on the monetary easing front. You know, we continue to see almost no movement in things like three-month Shibor, which again we've talked about as being a really good proxy for um, the scope and pace of mon- Chinese monetary policy dynamics. You know, the fact that they're not doing a ton tells you that they're content with a deepening growth slowdown over the next few months or the bear. You know, potentially as long as the next few quarters. That's a big deal. Like that's a big deal. And this goes back to our previous discussion. You know, so going back to um in this whole net liquidity dynamics, you know, the one thing I failed to mention prior to uh you know in the previous part of our discussion is that we do believe the growth data, high frequency growth data both in the US and abroad are likely to bounce in the month of September. And certainly if not by September, certainly by October as the world moves past the peak impact of Delta. Now that's a transitory bounce. We're not going to start trending higher. Um, the trend is lower for most economies. We're developing negative trends for most economies. But the reality is, it might sort of delay everything I said in terms of pulling forward all that negativity from a net liquidity perspective. It might delay that in market pricing terms, and then you turn around and say, "Okay, if Evergrande's contained, you know, it's 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 only you know if Evergrande's contained." and net liquidity dynamics will be offset by at least one to two months of positive growth data, then yeah, I should run out and go buy the Russell value and lever up and do that. But then you realize like, oh, no, wait, do I actually really want to own cyclicals into a deepening Chinese growth slowdown? No. Do I really want to own you know, you know, rate-sensitive defensives into a situation where net liquidity is going to become unfavorable for the Treasury market, which can catalyze a, a backup in, in real interest rates? Not really. And so, you know, when you look at something like like our dispersion analysis, which we track every day, we're looking at month on month sharp ratios across fifty different US equity sectors and style factors as a proxy for institutional inflows and outflows in real time. And the composition of the lower quintile has become very defensive. It's become, you know, full of defensives, 80, 90% of those constituents. And that's very different than what we've talked about all summer. If you go back, it's been the, the upper quintile has been dominated by uh, defensives all summer. And as the market has sort of you said, okay, I like Goldilocks, but I don't necessarily love, you know, these old crowded inflation trades. And that, that was the right call going back to my discussion with Ed Harrison um, in, in early June. You don't see the emergence of cyclical leadership in the upper quintile. It's just we're losing some of the defensive leadership in the, in the lower quintile. And so to me, I'm like, what the heck catalyzed that dynamic? Well, it's like somebody just taking down their risk, taking down their gross exposure. That's like a big fund or a series of big funds saying, hey, we made a lot of money this year. Let's start to park it because the net liquidity dynamics that I've been discussing that, you know, again, people who understand the plumbing of Wall Street are much better at
1: me with this stuff. I think they're, you know, they're starting to inflect sooner rather than later. We're going to take another quick break, but we'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
3: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.
1: Welcome back to the daily briefing. Let's get back to top analysis of today's markets. So, yeah, it's, it's people saying, hey, do I really, you know, I bought core Steel at 40 bucks. Now it's at 120. Do I really want to own it as you have, you know, one of the largest property developers in the world going bust? And by the way, you know, China devours 25% of all of the steel yeah. production in the world. And most of that is is for for buildings. And yeah. I I think um, you know, everyone's, is this a Lehman moment? I don't really want to comment on that. If anything, I think it's, it's not. It's, it's it's more of a more of a countrywide than a, a Lehman Brothers. Um,
2: yeah, to some degree. I mean, again, the, the, we, let's go back to the basics on Chinese financial sector. 80% of the credit, 80 plus percent of the credit is on bank balance sheet. Obviously, the state <laughs> owns all the banks. So they're obviously very incentivized to not allow you know financial sector contagion. However, they are very incentivized to quash speculation in the property market and make the uh, homeowners or would-be homeowners in China whole. In this process. Now, they might make a um, made whole on I mean, a much different duration than I think a lot of Evergrande's creditors thought. Um, but the reality is that is what it is. Um, again, this is not a Lehman moment. It's just a reality that's a policy driven growth slowdown. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, just because it's policy driven, they're going to change their mind and, and make growth accelerate anytime soon. It doesn't seem like that's a legitimate possibility here. And so all that really means is that, you know, where is this mark? What's the what's the next gasp of leadership we're going to get from this market? Because I see headwinds brewing, not necessarily today, not necessarily a few weeks from now, but certainly, you know, let's call it six weeks from now, eight weeks from now, you know, we're going to be in a place that's very different, potentially from a net liquidity standpoint, and a place that is you know, starting to go from growth data bounce post-Delta to now growth data starting to slow again. And that, that to me, is, a, is, a, is an issue.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right that Evergrande is not a real counterparty to global financial institutions in the way that Lehman Brothers was, in the way that AIG was, and still is. But, but you know, Darius, I've been looking into some of the, the wealth management products that it's, it's funded itself by, and I, there's a lot of hidden debt in that vehicles. Uh, they're pre-sales of real estate, where they, they sell it. And then people buy it, and they, you know, it's essentially unfinished land. They've got something like 231 square meters of, of of land on their balance sheets. That's, you know, by by it appears to be grossly overvalued. That's like four Manhattan's, and that's not even to mention the buyback guarantees, where it's say, like, oh, by the way, if the people default in their mortgage, we'll buy it back. So, you know, I, I, maybe it's just within China, but isn't China such a big economy that? You have all these uh, Chinese citizens wiped out because they bought these wealth management products, and their, their, real, their all of their wealth was tied up in wealth management products and real estate. And both of those sort of went bust. Do you think maybe they'll sell Chinese equities? And you know, they, the story that China is a demand center, not just a supply center, will sort of eviscerate? I mean, maybe, maybe we're saying, saying a similar thing.
2: You're, you're getting to the same point. Uh, my point is that this will not cause broader financial sector contagion because there's no real counterparty risk. But my point is this will cause a deepening slowdown in China because of the unwind of all that speculation you just highlighted that is positive for growth in in the Chinese economy. And obviously, what's positive for growth in the Chinese economy is broadly positive for growth in the global economy. So I think we're getting to the same point, which is you got a deepening growth slowdown in China, which may not bounce post-Delta because of all these dynamics. You're gonna get a both growth bounce in the US, Europe, Spark pockets of EM on the other side of Delta, but it's gonna be a transitory fleeting bounce. And so by the time you get to I don't know, by the time you get into the PMI data for October and the first week of November, that'll probably be like the last, you know, real obvious positive data point for a really long period of time on the growth side you know that and that's it you know and then, and then you're oh by the way it's november we're starting tapering in this net liquidity discussion that we've rambled on
1: about today yeah there's uh, earlier you you talked about your dispersion analysis that you do at 42 macro i should know that by now but what exactly did you mean when let's say new core steel or one of those cyclical stocks it's not appearing in the in the top quintile the bottom quintile and and how do you measure it yeah so i mean the easiest way to sort of you know kind of front
2: run broader risk off conditions if you're looking at intermarket dynamics it's just look at the cyclical uh, look at leadership between uh, sectors and style factors you know you can see you know defensive sectors defensive style factors start to lead from a flows perspective and again the reason we track month over month sharp ratios because that's why, A, where most of the institutional flows are being moved on the on the market neutral side but two it's also a pretty clear you know uh, indicator of flows when you you need to, uh, adjust for volatility and so, for as I mentioned, all summer we had seen a
1: pretty clear
2: dominance of defensive sectors and style factors, you know, dominating the upper, the upper quintile constituents. That's changed. Um, it's, it's, you know, we still have the kind of mega café kind of type, you know, names like Amazon and things like that up there. And so people are crowding into like the, you know, the five, sec- five stocks at any given time that are moving the market higher. But they're actually starting to sell some of that rest of that defensive exposure that was up there with them. But they're not actually replacing it with cyclical exposure. Right, like we're seeing things like most shorted stock indices, most shorted Chinese ADRs, SPACs, like kind of gravitate towards the upper quintile. That's not a flow into security. That's people covering shorts. And so, to me, it's like it seems like some fund or some big fund or series of big funds is taking down their risk. You know, they're actually just they're just degrossing to some degree. And I don't think you're going to see the real impact on that in the market at the bare minimum until we get to the other side of this quarterly operations expiry, because again, we got so many people crowding in on the short side outside of that, that it's very unlikely we see a market uh, crack, and the positioning dynamics um, beyond that haven't been really supportive for a big market move lower anyway. But again, I just worry that the closer you get into, the deeper you get in October, and certainly by early part of November, I think a lot, I think the jig could be up on a lot of really favorable dynamics that have gotten us to this point. Um, in in, in S and pricing terms and credit, uh, high, tightening credit spread terms and commodity pricing terms and so on and so forth.
1: Thanks for explaining that, Darius. We've got a question from Mr. Super Gibbs who wants to know: yields are dropping today. Please explain. Yeah, I mean that, that, that's a, in my opinion, I think that's a reasonable view. If the Fed is going to
2: tighten sooner and faster and actually pull forward rate hikes, marginally, we have two people shift. Uh, their views in 2022, so now we have half a point, and both you know 2022 and 2023 euro dollar spreads it did tick up three basis points today. You know, so if that's all going to happen, it just means that you know we're we're going to not run the economy as hot as we initially thought. Like all of this is saying, we're we're getting back towards normalized monetary policy reaction function. We're certainly not there yet. They're still buying billion a month, and that's obviously favorable for risk assets, which is why I said take down your gross but maintain a wide net. You want to be long. You just don't need to be long as with as much money because we're getting into what I would consider to be now I don't know the top of the ninth inning of this you know maybe you know maybe we're already ninth inning top of the ninth and there's already one out um, so it's like wow. you, don't need to be, you don't need to be grossly exposed in the in the ninth inning at all I think the time to be grossly exposed is when I came in your program um, in December came in other programs in November and said hey no we're going to reflate in a way you've never seen before. We're almost a year later, and that obviously was a great call. But now it's time to start being prudent, in my opinion, and not, you know, kind of trying to squeeze the last apple cherry off the tree or slice the last. I don't, I don't
1: have a terrible uh, saying, so you <laughs> can take, take that over. <laughs> We're better than mine, Darius. That's for sure. Well, thank you, Darius, for sharing your perspective. You know, you've been beating the bullish drum, the goldilocks drum, for a long time, and it's very interesting to hear that your perspective has has changed um, now for all the reasons that you talked about. Uh, Darius, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Darius. Of course, you are at 42 macro. Also, to the people watching at home, thank you. If you want to see a little bit of Darius, of, dairy, of uh, more of Darius's thinking, you can click uh, on the link in the description he posted on the Real Vision Exchange. Um, some of his views and some of the charts that we put on today. If you're, you know, if you if you got the the itch for some Evergrande information, you can check out my interview with Larry McDonald on Real Vision Live, as well as a uh, previous uh, yesterday's Real Vision Live with Ann Stevenson Yang, a short seller who lived in China for 25 years. Uh, Darius, Darius, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you, everyone at home, for watching. Thank you.
3: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads.